to the Negro Leagues Are Major Leagues podcast, a production of Sports Reference. I'm your host, Curtis Harris. Today we are joined by Michael E. Lomax, a retired professor of sport history from the University of Iowa. Mr. Lomax has published two books and one anthology, along with several articles on the history of black baseball. His second book in particular, Black Baseball Entrepreneurs, The Negro National and Eastern Colored Leagues was published in 2014 and won a Society for American Baseball Research Award. On today's episode, uh, Professor Lomax and I discuss the the business of baseball, really. Uh, The how did white and black leagues operate roughly from the 1920s through the 1950s and how segregation impacted uh, their business operations, but also how integration obviously altered uh, those operations, but we'll discuss particularly uh, what exactly changed in, in, in those operations as the black major leagues lost their players to the white majors. So it's a thoughtful conversation uh, discussing uh, many important and often overlooked aspects of baseball history. Uh, but here is my conversation with Professor Michael E. Lomax. I would like to welcome uh, Professor Michael E. Lomax uh, to, to the show today. Uh, I, I always like for um, for guests on the podcast to kind of introduce themselves in their own words. Uh, I've already done an introduction, but I would like to have you, Professor Lomax, um, in your own words, tell the audience who you are and what do you do? Well, my name is uh, Michael Lomax, and I am a retired uh, professor of sport management both at the University of Georgia and the uh, University of Iowa. I've been a professor for 15 years until my illness resulted in me having to retire from the university. But on my recovery, I've still been able to publish my books and still I still write my, my autumn. As a matter of fact, I'm working on a current book on the history of Major League Baseball from 1945 to 1951. And I'm focusing more upon the uh, business aspect of the sport rather than a really a, what would be called a popular history. All right. And uh, actually, that's uh, a great, actually, segue to my next question for you, because uh, we'll, we'll get more into the, the business aspects of baseball in that period. Uh, but could you also... Um, let people know just how you got interested in baseball history to begin with. Well, uh, to believe it or not, that really wasn't my first interest when I was in graduate school. Um, I was really more interested in the history of the American football league. Cause at that particular time, when I was in graduate school, I was trying to understand why a corporation would spend a quarter of a million dollars just for a 30 second ad to be associated uh, with the American Football League. And then I took a class uh, on sport and the African-American experience when I was at Ohio State. And the only thing that came to my mind was that I don't recall my experience as a former athlete similar to what was being talked about in that particular class. So within a year, I found myself uh, writing 
about the African-American experience in sports. And I got interested in baseball mainly because of the desire of wanting to know why we had been so uh, absorbed by this sport from the late 19th and early 20th century and how uh, our numbers have declined precipitously, particularly in the major leagues in the last 25 to 30 years up to the present time. So uh, I basically wanted to find out why all of a sudden there was a significant decline in African-Americans in baseball and a rise both in the National Football League and the National Basketball Association. Yeah, that's interesting. Always, uh, again, I ask every guest, you know, the kind of detail, how they got involved with it. And it's just interesting to hear how you kind of, I guess, in a backdoor way, I uh, got involved with it. Yeah, what wasn't the first or obvious um, choice for you. And, and just out of curiosity, uh, what, what sport did you play in college? Well, I endeavored to play baseball until I found out that I couldn't hit a curveball. So, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, in college, I actually played tennis and racquetball. I was a tennis coach for about 10 or 11 years, and I actually played tournament racquetball for a while. I never did get as good as the uh, major players, but I could hold my own on the court. All right, man, that's this is information the audience doesn't need to know, but I was absolutely terrible at tennis. That was my least favorite sport <laughs> in grade school. I hated it when they got us out there. They're like, all right, time to practice tennis. Like I, I just cannot handle a racket to save my life. Uh, <laughs> I was much better at basketball and soccer. But let's dig into the uh, what we're actually here for, uh, kind of the history of black baseball. And uh, I was reading the kind of the, um, the anthology edited by Todd Peterson, uh, which is called The Negro Leagues Were Major Leagues. And you had mm-hmm. an essay in that anthology, which I found interesting how you discussed the um, – this idea of organizational culture and, and uh, professional baseball. So uh, just to kind of set the table uh, for the audience, uh, could you explain uh, briefly what organizational culture means uh, in, in your words? Well, one of the things I was trying to do is um, the, the majority of the research on Jackie Robinson crossing the color line is how uh, he significantly uh transform baseball in American society, and that was valid. So I wanted to do something that was a little bit different. So I came up with the idea of organizational culture, and nobody has done it from a historical standpoint, and I couldn't think of a better place to start than with with baseball. I actually got the idea one time watching Des Bryant when he was with that time at the, with the Dallas Cowboys and how he had got, he was really frustrated and the camera always focused upon him on the, uh, on the sidelines. And two weeks later, when the Cowboys were on television again, the primary focus again was on Des Bryant in the sideline. So I began to see when you sit and think about it, that is probably the work environment. My argument was that no work environment gets more scrutinized than in professional team sports, not only just football, but baseball, but basketball. So, so my primary focus was to look at how, how the players interacted with, them, with themselves. 
and also how did they interact, like particularly in Robinson's case with the other white players, uh, how they were treated differently than the white players uh, at the end at the end of World War Two. What the rea- their reaction was in their relationship with not only with the players but with the fans, and would also with like the general manager or which is what their relation. So I did this kind of inside and outside um, uh, framework on organizational culture to be able to see how. Uh, this became a means of how these players learn to interact with themselves. And what I found that was interesting about that, it seemed that Robinson's performance on the field seemed to somewhat marginalize all of his experience, like with the fans, uh, him being separated from the uh, players or the white players during, during spring training, and mainly uh, because his ability to be able to perform at such an optimal level with all these forces going against him, that was my primary focus to understand how he actually changed the culture that would become Major League Baseball after the end of World War II. Because when you think about it, up to that time, all you had was primarily white players and some minority players that managed to slip through the cracks. But Ricky was the first one that had a black player that he actually made an initial investment in from a business standpoint in order for him to develop to a level that would make the Dodgers a contender for years to come. Okay, and I I think it's actually... um that's a good point to kind of back it up a little bit, I guess, uh, chronologically. So we can get more into how Jackie Robinson uh, and his incorporation to Major League Baseball, uh, you know, changed the business and organizational aspects. But how did things operate, say, in the 1920s and 1930s uh, for white major leagues and also for black major leagues at that period? So I guess we'll start with the white leagues first and then we'll uh, move into the black leagues. Well, in terms of the white leagues, um, that is still pretty, and that was also the premise of uh, of the current uh, manuscript I'm working on right now. Running a baseball as a business is a little bit different than other conventional businesses. It is it's because the contest had to be exciting in order to stimulate fan interest. So baseball are owners, club owners, are competitors on the field, but they're partners in business who must cooperate to a much greater degree than other business conventional interests. Contest has to be interesting. I would hardly think that a team would go watch a pennant contender or a World Series champion like the Boston Red Sox play a high school team. So therefore, caliber and playing strength had to be at an appreciable level that we could stick the brand known as major leagues. Now, conversely, the Negro Leagues basically operated as independent operators. It was only when they came up to the 1920s and there were a significant degree of black teams that were working at an optimal level that operated uh, to the point where 
Andrew Rube Foster, who owned the Chicago American Giants, decided to create the Negro National League in 1920. Now, unfortunately, Rube Foster's vision of running the Negro Leagues was much different than what the black press. Rube Foster saw basically the Negro Leagues as his booking empire, and he tried to get as many teams to come to Chicago, which was somewhat understandable from his standpoint, to create more revenue. But he did not realize that once he created a league, him traveling either to St. Louis or Kansas City was just as viable uh, for him to increase his profits than having Kansas City and St. Louis constantly going to Chicago, which increased their overhead experience expenses to travel there. So Rube Foster never got over, never embraced the fact that his interest and the business interest was one and the same. Conversely, the black press, which gave the Negro Leagues a significant degree of publicity, had this vision of the major league, the Negro Leagues, being parallel to the major leagues. But that never was Ruth Foster's uh, vision, nor later Ed Bolden, who ran probably the most successful black-owned and operated baseball club in the Hilldale Athletic Club in Philadelphia, who broke away from Foster and created what was called the Eastern Color League. He got into alliance more with Nat Strong so he could play more games in New York. But that came at the expense of the other teams that were like in New Jersey. Uh, Baltimore refused to play home game, I mean, away games outside of Baltimore on the weekend. So they really didn't run more like a league as much as they ran more like an alliance between the, the, the owners of the Negro Leagues and the owners of the Eastern Colored League. Some interesting parallels. Is, um, I'm, some of my academic work is focused on um, pro basketball in that same era. And I definitely see some similarities in how um, barnstorming basketball teams operated versus league basketball teams. So yeah, that, that, that's definitely, as you were speaking, I was, I was thinking of like basketball teams in my head, like, yeah, I, could, I, I, I imagine them having the same issues and these um, these problems or issues of uh, trying to cooperate, but also you're competing at the same time. Uh, these different interests involved in the business of the sport, but we're, we're here for baseball, not basketball. Uh, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to bore everybody uh, who's listening with the New York Renaissance and the, uh, all those other great teams. But, uh, so with the, but the baseball clubs, um, both white and black, um, again, we have these, these kind of tensions going on. Uh, already have to recognize that, they have shared interests, or maybe they don't realize they have shared interests uh, at points. Uh, selfishness, I guess, comes into play at certain moments. Getting back to Jackie Robinson and uh, his integration with the with the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, how does that? Uh, I mean, you've already started talking about it earlier, but you know, I guess you can flesh it out more now. Uh, how does that begin to upend how the National and American leagues were operating at that point by now incorporating uh, black players into the fold? Well, oddly enough, um, Branch Rickey actually brought the idea when he became the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers to this New York banker named John V. McLaughlin. 
who had a significant interest in the Brooklyn Dodgers. Believe it or not, it was World War II that had an impact upon integrating the white major leagues. Ricky made the, the, the argument that most of the other league teams would, would decrease in their scouting of other leagues. And he actually made the argument that they should increase their scouting and begin to look not only toward the Negro leagues, but also to Cuba and, and to Venezuela as a means of hiring blue chip talent. So really it was always going to be put upon the owners themselves to be the ones that would be first that would try to bring an African-American player into the white major leagues. And one thing that I think that most scholars don't put into account when a player is come into a minor league system from a business point of view, uh, this is an investment and they're either looking for that player to develop to an appreciable level where they could uh, help the team compete for a pennant or a world series championship. Or in the case that Ricky said, uh, uh, Ricky had the vision that they would get them to an appreciable level. Then they would sell uh, that player to another, uh, to another team in the major leagues and they would increase their profits that way. And Ricky being the smart entrepreneur that he was made sure that he got himself a percentage of all the player sales. Now, what is also, I think has been uh, left out of this scenario is that Ricky alone was not the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He also had partners in John L. Smith, the president of Pfizer, and Walter O'Malley. So he had to get Smith and O'Malley on board in order for them to agree of bringing a black player to the major leagues. So therefore, instead of making this moral argument, he made an argument on dollars and cents because Ricky, from his standpoint, thought that would be the way that they would uh, they would understand. I guess, you know, so that's 19, you know, well, at 47 is when uh, Jackie is able to break through um, into the into the majors. Uh, but I'm curious, and this might be getting into your, your work you're um, working on right now, completing, but how did the black and uh, white leagues start, um, I guess, adjusting to this, in, to the to integration in, in the late 40s and early 1950s? Because I guess it's more well known how white leagues responded. I mean, they, they got more black players. Uh, but I also think it's interesting just to think about, uh, you know, they got black players, but they didn't necessarily hire black managers or other uh, positions, uh, weren't staffed with black people. And then conversely, the black leagues, you know, they're losing some of their best players now to the white league. So I guess just what's the overall response from both white and black leagues to the uh, to, to integration in, in the late 40s and early 50s? Well, you see, integration really was a mixed blessing for the Negro leagues on one hand, because of the war, the Negro Leagues actually prospered, mm-hmm. and it was becoming one of the most significant businesses uh, in the black community. On the other hand, once Ricky uh, brought Robinson in, and when Robinson 
began to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers, it became very problematic for the Negro Leagues really to compete uh, against the white major leagues. So using kind of the uh, business uh, edict, inadvertently, the white major leagues basically competed against the Negro Leagues to put them out of business. Now, one of the problems also is that once that Robinson crossed over, the uh, Negro Leagues tried to find a way that they could affiliate with the white major leagues because they had a problem that Robinson or that Ricky had basically negotiated with Robinson, but he didn't negotiate with any of the owners, particularly that particular time, the owner of the Kansas City Monarchs was Tom Baird. And Baird was getting ready to make a big stink about the fact that he had basically had stolen Robinson from the Kansas City Monarchs when he signed the play in the Brooklyn Dodgers organization. To make sure that that didn't happen again in the future, the uh, president of the Negro National League and the Negro American League took a petition to baseball commissioner uh, at that time, which was Albert Happy Chandler. And Chandler said we would be more than happy to negotiate. But he raised the bar so high that it was almost impossible for the Negro Leagues ever to reach the standards that Chandler had set because he had also recognized that most of the Negro League teams did not own their own ballpark. That's always been the Achilles heel in black community development for the Negro Leagues is that they had to become increasingly reliant upon using the white major league ballparks and they could charge significant rents to the Negro Leagues that made it problematic for them to invest uh, in building their own ballpark. So by the time that uh, Robinson crossed the cutter line, the Negro Leagues, for the most part, was in a decline. So they thought they they would shift gears since they were interested in their players. They would try to... uh, develop players to appreciable level and sell them to the white major leagues in a way of keeping their businesses solvent. But they always tried to find ways to get an affiliation. And each time the major and even the minor league administrators always put a, a, a obstacle or hurdle that made it hard for the Negro leagues to affiliate with them. Yeah. So it sounds like, um, I get, you know, it's technically integration, but it's integration on the terms of uh, white major league baseball. It wasn't really a negotiation. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that's um, to bring a little family history into it. That's something my aunt, <laughs> Mitch, I'm just thinking about it. Now. Mm. My aunt mentioned this. She said, like, you know, she's like, I, I'm glad I'm glad we had integration. But she said, you know, it put a lot of uh, black people out of business because uh, they weren't able to. Uh, you know, incorporate or integrate on the same footing with white people and some, some businesses and baseball seems to be uh, one of those instances. Yes, it was. So having gone through that portion, uh, how, how did the Negro leagues, I guess, how did they come to an end? I guess uh, it, I'm not sure if that's the right, right way to phrase the question, but you know, obviously they're, they're not able to affiliate or uh, integrate as whole clubs into Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball just takes the players. They don't want the teams or the operations. Uh, so how does Negro League Baseball, I guess, come to its conclusion? 
during the 50s and early 60s? Well, there, as a combination thing, it, it really seems that arguably integrate the ultimate goal of integrating into the mainstream has always been a, a integral part of the African American African American experience for the late 19th century. But at the same time, because of this separate black economy that was opposed upon uh, African Americans, there was also this nationalistic feeling that there, there's just no way that uh, people of white ancestry is going to change. So we'll make our own businesses and our own institutions. And then for some among who created this economic black nationalism, they saw that as a way they could get their enterprises to a level that they could compete with the white enterprises. And that would also theoretically result into assimilation. But then there were some black nationalists who just said, this is not going to happen at all. And they wanted to be totally separate from, uh, from the white race. So as a result, these three strands that were going through the African-American experience, one could make the argument that integration eventually won out in the, in the 1950s. But in the terms of baseball, integration was always on the terms of the white major leagues. And that's the reason why integration arguably went at a snail's pace. It wasn't until... 1960 that the last team in the major leagues integrating that is when Pumpsy Green joined the the Boston Red Sox but by that time there were more African Americans voting for their wallets because they would rather see Hank Aaron uh, Ernie Banks or Willie Mays play in the 50s in the white major leagues and it was very difficult for the Negro League to compete against that. So slowly by slowly, they slowly faded into the dustbin in history. And most historians would argue by 1960, the Negro Leagues went out of business. Yeah, that's a, uh, oh, geez, uh, for, for listeners out there, like that is a very rich and whole other subject, not not whole other subject, but, you know, just uh, another avenue to go down discussing that, that the various uh, ideas on how to, integrate or cooperate or maneuver in American society uh, as black people uh, and in Negro league baseball, uh, black baseball is just one aspect of that. There are many, many other avenues to explore, but uh, we are only one show uh, on the subject of baseball. I can't go through all of it. Um, mm-hmm. But, but, but on this point uh, to bring our uh, discussion uh, to a conclusion, why do you think it's important, uh, Michael, for, uh, the listener or just the average uh, baseball fan or even average American to know about the organizational and business history of um, of baseball during the 30s, 40s, and 50s, whether it's black and white, how they acted together or how they didn't act together. Um, why is it important to, for people to know about that history, uh, generally speaking? Well, you know, I was thinking pretty much about that question and how I would address that, but... <laughs> One of the things that I would probably argue is that to understand the Negro Leagues was to show how we as as a people still endeavor to compete within the mainstream economy of America. And we were not just 
a bunch of passive pawns that were basically tossed to and fro by the, these forces that working against us that we actually tried to create business enterprises in our own interest. And I still think that that is an integral part of the African experience, American experience that remains to this day. Although their focus now is probably going to be more upon global concern than just competing in American business. But innovation is an integral part of the African-American experience that I think can be um, something that everyday learners can learn. I mean, uh, even I, one of the things that the African-American black baseball teams of the late 19th centuries would travel to Florida, so they were an integral part of the recreation and leisure industry. And there used to be this same dance called cakewalk that was pretty prominent among African-Americans in the 19th century. And one of the baseball players from the Cuban Giants who played, uh, who was the third base coach, I'm still trying to picture in my mind the one way that he entertained the guests down in Florida was to do the cakewalk around the third base, their third base line. I'm still trying to picture what like something would look about. But one can see even how innovation has been like in basketball. Willie Mays making the infamous basket catch and he would go out of his way to make sure that his hat was too small. So when he went and ran for a fly ball in deep center field, his hat would always fall. That was done by design. And in many ways, they created their own brand before branding was cool. So I, I would argue that it's this notion of innovation and the fact that they were not just passive pawns being tossed around by the forces imposed upon them. They still try to compete in the mainstream and they try to develop business, uh, business enterprises in their own interest. All right. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Professor Michael Lomax, uh, for educating us and uh, telling us uh, just great information about the, the business and organizational aspects of, uh, of Major League Baseball, whether white or, or Major League Baseball uh, teams and leagues in that era. I know we're still trying to figure out, you know, how, what exactly to call these teams now, uh, now that the stats are being uh, re-looked upon and in, in a good way. Uh, but I'll just say... Mm all the major league teams and um, whether white or black, how they operated back in that era. Uh, it's been fascinating having you uh, educate us on that. So uh, thank you much for joining us. Well, I want to thank you also. And it's been a very interesting case. I was using this technology and I'm glad that we would still be able, we're able to make this all happen. Yep. All right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. For listeners, uh, we had a little, we had a great struggle with trying to get this uh, connection made, but we were able to do it. it took about 15 minutes, but, Get to persevere. I'd like to again express my appreciation for Professor Lomax for joining us on the Negro Leagues, our major leagues podcast. I hope you all enjoyed listening and learned a lot uh, from Professor Lomax and I's conversation. And we will see you back here again for another episode of the Negro Leagues, our major leagues. <laughs>